go ahead and have a seat. Um, we'll be looking today at Daniel 3, and it's a long reading, as Old Testament readings usually are, so I'll have you remain seated. You know, it's funny, I, uh, I texted Pastor Robert this week to ask him if uh, we were picking up Sunday nights at CPC on February 13th, because that was what was in my calendar. And he's like, you're crazy, it's Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> I said, well, you know, you got a point. And then later that evening, I texted him and I said, you mean to tell me I chose to preach on the Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol and the fiery furnace on Super Bowl Sunday? That's how sports literate I am. So truly, it was unintentional. But no, I think we're going to see Jesus very clearly in this text and it's going to be very encouraging. So I'd invite you to open to Daniel chapter 3. I'll just be reading the first part and we'll pick up the rest toward the end of the sermon. This is God's word in Daniel 3, 1 through 18. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the the pipe, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good." But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. 
and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, as so often I remember sitting before your word together, we pray that you would sanctify us with your truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace in this remarkable story. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace to people who know you and love you and follow you with our whole hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if this story sounds a little foreign to our ears this morning, as much of the book of Daniel does, let me move it a little bit closer to our neighborhood. Uh, I read a news story this week about 25 people in southern Mexico. I've been praying for them this week. 25 people in southern Mexico who have been kicked out of their village due to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is Mexico, right? This isn't the Middle East. This isn't China. This isn't Nigeria. This is Mexico, our neighbors to the south. These families, 25 people making up two or three families in this village, they refuse to participate in these drunken festivals honoring the pagan gods of, of the local religion. So some of them were arrested by village authorities. And you see this picture of the 25 people. It's men and women and children. Many of the women are holding or wearing babies. And these, these people are cast out of their village for their faith in Christ and refusing to worship the idols of the local religion. See, there are times when you have to stand firm for your faith and face the consequences for standing firm for your faith. So I'm calling this series through some of the stories in Daniel, Faith, Courage, and Exile, because I want to look with you at, at lessons in this book and in these stories about the courage of faith and the courage that faith gives us as we live in today's world. So despite some of the foreign words like Nebuchadnezzar and Trigon and satraps, that's the king, that's a guitar that's kind of shaped like a Dorito, and a Babylonian government official. You know, it's, it, can be, it can be strange, it can seem foreign, but despite some of these things, this book and these stories meet us where we live and the dilemmas that we face. The, the story that we're looking at today shows us the timeless dilemma for those who have followed the Lord by faith. There are times when you simply have to stand firm and face the music, in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the horn, the pipe, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every other kind of music. There are times when you just have to face the music for your faith in the Lord Jesus and face the consequences that may come. So the question is, how are you going to stand firm in Daniel 3 moments in your life? So I want to look today at three lessons we learn in Daniel 3 about standing firm when faith has to face the music. First, you need to love God and know what God requires of you to stand firm. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer three says that one of the two main things that scripture teaches us is what duty God requires of man. What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. It's so important to know what God requires of you. And it's more than just knowing it, right? It's more than that. Knowing what duty God requires of you and actually doing it are two very different things. That's part of the pressure facing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story. It's telling, isn't it, that in this story, only three men stand accused of not bowing down. 
It turns out Nebuchadnezzar only needs one furnace to fit all the rebels who refuse to bow down in this story. Had Daniel been around on the plains of Dora, surely there would have been four resistant to bowing down. But just three faithful men are mentioned. And this is probably a sad commentary on the state of faith in Judah in their exile in Babylon. Verse 7 leaves little doubt to the fact that most of the Judean countrymen of these, of these uh, friends of Daniel were bowing down. It says, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. How easy might it have been for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to just go with the flow of the infidelity around them in Judah. Just keep it simple. Just bow the knee, say the words, and go on with life. Do what was asked with them. Do what was asked of them. Just go with the majority. But these three young Hebrew men, they they had paid attention to their upbringing in the law of God. They knew it would have been breaking covenant with God back in Daniel 1. They knew that they would have been breaking their covenant with God to uh, eat at the king's table, and it just wasn't an option. They knew that bowing down before this golden image, a golden idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, was a direct transgression of God's law. We read this in Exodus 20, when God made his covenant with Israel, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. So fall down before this golden idol and worship it, this idol that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. That's literally what God told us not to do. Not happening. It's a no-brainer for these men. They knew what God requires. Yet so did the rest of Judah, right? The rest of Judah grew up hearing Torah. They grew up hearing the Ten Commandments. They grew up knowing what God requires. See, it's not enough to just know what duty God requires of you. Clearly, because Judah had a long track record of rationalizing uh, their disobedience and their rebellion against God. It's what led them into exile in the first place. We need wives. Everybody else is worshiping idols. It helps our economy. Hurts nobody. Benefits everybody. Sadly, isn't this how we often deal with our own faith dilemmas in our 21st century context? We excuse and we rationalize and we come up with all the reasons why it's not a very big deal to do what's easy instead of what God requires of us. We convince ourselves that we don't want to look like weirdos. We don't want to look like bigots. We don't want to look like Bible thumpers. We convince ourselves that it's just the way we have to be to get by living in the world. Chances are you'll never be asked to bow down to a golden idol and reject your faith, a golden idol of the king. But whenever we take something or someone and we put it on the throne instead of God, even when we put our own will on the throne instead of God's will, we have become idolaters. That's idolatry. See, it's, it's not just a story here about persecution and what you're going to do in that intense moment of persecution. It's, it's, a, it's a story about idolatry and honoring God and loving God by keeping his commandments no matter the cost. There's lots of different kinds of idolatry in our world. There's superstitious idolatry, which we often think of, with pagan priests promising security, wealth, and power for devotion to the religion. 
There's political idolatry with priests of another kind promising wealth and security and power for devotion to the party. There's consumeristic idolatry promising security and wealth and power for your devotion to the grind. And there's the scariest kind of idolatry of all, the slow drip of worldly influence that seeps into us when we're not even aware that it's happening. It can be so subtle. Idolatry isn't just a relic of the Bronze Age or the Iron Age. It's a reality in the information age that we live in today. We submit ourselves to the influence of the world in which we live. Imbibing the world's opinions, usually we pipe it in right through screens of different shapes and sizes as we surf the channels and we scroll the feeds and we're subtly corrupted in our opinions and in our affections by something other than what God's word says to us in this book. See, idolatry isn't always dramatic. You can be an idolater by simply absorbing the world's values like a sponge, drip by drip, one drop at a time, moment by moment. God's law says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yet you can slowly absorb the mentality that it's Sunday fun day, that maybe I don't want to go to church today. Maybe I want a little me time today. Thank goodness we're not that selective with commandments like do not kill. Please, when you read do not kill, never think, I just need a little me time today. (laughs) I think they make Netflix original series about that. God's law says don't covet. Yet you live by the motto, he who dies with the most toys wins. God's law says you shall not commit adultery. A command which Jesus says includes every lustful gaze. Yet how is the church so very different in actual practice, pursuing purity at all costs? God's law says honor your father and mother and all who are in authority over you by implication. How does that work around election season? When you put it that way, do you see just how spongy we can really be? We can soak up the values of the world around us, the idolatry that surrounds us. I know I hate how easily I can become a sponge. I hate how easily I can be a fish that's swimming in so much water I just don't even know that I'm wet. I think we all think we'd like to have our even-if-he-doesn't moment, like these men in our story. We think we'd have our here-I-stand-I-can-do-no-other moment like Luther on trial or God opened the king of England's eyes like Tyndale when he was strangled and burned or be of good comfort Master Ridley like Hugh Latimer at the stake and countless others in the history of the church when they were faced with compromise or faithfulness, standing firm when faith must face the music. But how do we expect to do that if we're being lulled to sleep and lulled into idolatry moment by moment? before that time even comes. We want to take a stand, but are we even taking a stand now in our daily walk of obedience? You know, a standing or perhaps sitting under God's law in this way gives you a pit in your stomach? Thank God for that, because that's the point. The law must bring us low if grace is going to lift us up. Sometimes, so often, we don't stand firm. So often the rooster crows three times and we realize that we've denied the one who deserves all of our obedience, all of our love, and all of our devotion, and all of our trust. And Jesus won't abandon you. Just like he didn't abandon Peter, he won't abandon you when the rooster crows, when the shrieking law pierces through the fog you're living in and you realize that you've blown it again. But you better believe that Jesus will ask you that same threefold question which he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Not as a rebuke, but as a reminder of his tenacious love for you. 
the duty that God requires of man to love him with all that we are. It becomes a delight when we know just how deeply we've been loved by Jesus. You have to know what God requires of you, but it's your love for your Savior that will make all the difference. Not just knowing the commandments, but living in light of that love. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. So these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they love God. There's no other explanation for their bravery and courage. They love God absolutely in that moment, and they know that God requires this of his people. And no fiery furnace is going to rival their love and their obedience. Can we say the same about our love? So first, you have to love God and know what God requires of you to stand firm. Secondly, you have to have confidence. You must have confidence in God's character to stand firm. Confidence in his character. Do you ever find it hard to hold out hope that Jesus will come back and make everything right again? And we're supposed to believe that. It's true, but do you ever find it hard to believe that? I once read a pastor who said, non-Christians don't pray because they're afraid God is there. Christians don't pray because they're afraid God is not there and they don't want to lose their faith. I think our faith can experience weakness like that. But as Puritan Thomas Watson said, a weak faith may lay hold of a strong Christ. The promises are not made to strong faith, but to true faith. So even in the middle of the Babylonian exile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and other faithful men and women in Judah, even when everything seemed like it was over for Judah, they had reason to have faith in God's character. They had reason for hope in his character in at least two ways. They were looking to God's proven character in the past, and they were banking on God's trustworthy character for the future. So let me put this strong faith in God's character, this confidence in his character as a call to you today. Christian, stand firm by looking with confidence to what God has done. That's the first part. Looking with confidence to what God has done. Look with me back at verse 13. We read, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of all the musical instruments, and bow down before the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That question, it's a rhetorical question. It was a threat, and it was a really foolish one at that. So foolish. Nebuchadnezzar in the previous chapter, which we haven't looked at, uh, he sees this vision of an enormous statue that kingdoms would rise and they would fall one after another, idolatrous kingdoms, kingdoms that oppose the kingdom of God. And at the end, the kingdom of God would come like a rock and crush every single one of them. And God's kingdom would be victorious. All the idolatrous nations would be brought to naught. He even praised in chapter two, the God of Israel for revealing this to him. Then what does he do? He turns around and he builds a golden statue like the one he saw in his vision and says, bow down to that and worship me and what I stand for. So I think he gets what's coming to him when we read next in verse 16. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, you're a fool. But sometimes you have to answer a fool according to his folly. So they go on and give him an answer anyway. And the first part of their answer 
The first part of their answer is looking with confidence to what God has done. They say, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Christian, the Lord's track record of faithfulness to you through everything you've gone through and his revelation of faithfulness to his people in this book is all that you need to stand confident knowing that God's faithfulness in the past is firm ground for you to stand for your faith. They know that God has delivered his people and they know that God can do it again. And we have to remember that in moments when we have to stand firm for our faith. But it gets better. It gets even better than this. Uh, putting, putting it again in a form of a call to you this morning, this is the next thing we see. Christian, stand firm by looking with confidence to what God has promised to do. It's amazing what they say next. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not. Those are three amazing words. But if not. They know their faith must face the music. They know the flames are burning hotter than ever in the furnace. They know that God is able to save them, and they trust that he will, but if not. They face the prospect of dying as exiles in a foreign world called Babylon. But they have their sights set on the world that is to come that God has promised to them. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then we hear about our three friends of our story in Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 34. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire. We may be tempted to say, wow, that is amazing faith in this story. That's remarkable faith, but it's not. That's where we're wrong. That's not remarkable faith. That's faith. That's true faith. It may be weak, but it's true. Faith does that. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Without faith, not remarkable faith, not superpower faith, just faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, that's the promise. That's the promise. So Christian, stand firm by looking with confidence to what God has done and by looking to what God has promised to do. Is your faith ready to face the music like this because it's fixed on the faithful character of God to you in the past and his promises to you in the future? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So you need to love God and know what God requires to stand firm. You must have a strong faith and confidence in the character of God to stand firm. Finally, you can count on God's presence with you as you stand firm. 
Look at verse 19 with me. We're going to finish the story now. Verses 19 and following. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace." Then King Nebuchadnezzar, he was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way." Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I'm not going to talk much about the very, very end of the story, but it's interesting how in these early chapters of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar keeps confessing that God is the true God of Israel, but he doesn't really seem to get it. Um, Our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, they come through this trial unscathed, literally, and they're better off than they were even before things began. But I want to look at something that happens in this story, what happens when the arrogant king peers through the radiating fury and heat of the furnace, and he's so confused. He's astonished. He says, what's this? Not only are they not consumed by fire, there's three of them we threw in, but now I see four people in the fire. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This wasn't the first time that a king who thought he was God had tried to stamp out the people of God. And it wasn't the first time that God had appeared in the midst of fire to free his people according to his promise. Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's some kind of divine or angelic being, but but think of this. In Exodus chapter 3, we read of God appearing to Moses in a burning bush, right? A bush that was burning yet not consumed by fire. And he appeared for a very specific reason. He appeared in this burning bush to declare his faithfulness to the promise he had made to Abraham and to free his people from Egypt on the basis of that promise. And you know what Egypt is called in Deuteronomy 4.20? It's called the furnace. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. 
Now, the one who spoke to Moses in the midst of this burning bush in the desert, it was the angel of the Lord. This was God the Son appearing before his incarnation, the one whom we now know in the person called Jesus. We know this because he speaks as the Lord speaks out of the burning bush. And while mere angels always protest it when they always say, no, don't do this, when men try to bow down or, or show some kind of a fear of the, the holiness, the presence in which they're in, that doesn't happen. The angel of the Lord accepts Moses' show of, of, of just fear and awe, covering his face, telling him to remove his sandals because this is holy ground. This is the Son of God, God the Son, before he was born as Jesus. And I think John Calvin just absolutely nails it in that scene in the desert when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and tells him that he's going to save his people. Calvin says this, The bush is likened to the humble and despised people. Their tyrannical oppression is not unlike the fire which would have consumed them had not God miraculously interposed. Thus, by the presence of God, the bush escaped safely from the fire. As it is said in Psalm 46.1, that though the waves of trouble beat against the church and threaten her destruction, yet shall she not be moved, for God is in the midst of her. Thus was the cruelly afflicted people aptly represented, who though surrounded by flames and feeling their heat, yet remained unconsumed, because they were guarded by the present help of God. I love the symbol of the Church of Scotland. Today we would call it a logo, but it deserves to be called more than a logo because it's so impressive. It comes from this story of the burning bush. The symbol, it just kind of showed up one day in, the, in 1691 when a printer, George Mossman, he was printing some records of the church and he decided to put it on the title page of these materials. It was the image of the burning bush inscribed with these words in Latin, nec tamen consumibatur, yet not consumed. However, it was not consumed. Doesn't that symbol make an amazing statement about the church of Jesus Christ? However, it was not consumed. The very fact that the church exists today, through every burning attack against her, and even despite her own failures, it's pictured so well by that image of the burning bush. The, bu the bush was burning, and the church has faced the fires of persecution from without, and even the burning shame of unfaithfulness from within. However, it is not consumed. Guarded by the present help of God and the presence of Christ her Savior. So because of this imagery in the burning bush, the keeping from consuming love and protection of God and the faithfulness to his covenant that was witnessed there, I believe this is Jesus, the fourth man in the flames, before we knew him by name. The fourth man walking through the fire with these three faithful men who were not consumed. Del Ralph Davis puts it so well. He says, He does not always shield you from all distresses and dangers, but it is in the loneliness, in the betrayal, in the loss that the fourth man comes and walks with you. He has the knack of both exposing you to, yet keeping you through waters and rivers and fire and operating rooms and funeral parlors and an empty house. The fourth man can always find his people. That's why we're burning, friends, yet we're not consumed. Because the fourth man can always find his people. Our Lord and Savior Jesus will be with you as you stand firm for your faith. You can take that to the bank. To the very last day, he will be with you. The Son of Man will send his angels 
And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. This is Jesus speaking. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. However, they were not consumed. So come to God through him now, today. Love God in him and know what he requires of you and the delight of serving him because of that love. Confidently trust his character, knowing what he's done and knowing what he will do and know that he is always with you. You can count on his presence with you through everything. Let's pray together. Father, may our love for you be as bold and brave as the love we see here in these three men who teach us so much. With the courage of faith, may we live in this earthly exile, unwavering in our commitment to worship you and you alone. Teach us what we must do. Grow our confidence in your character and help us to always know and enjoy the fellowship and the fearlessness your presence gives. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.